Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Welcome to a special edition of Compliance Beat, the Yates Update, the year in bonanza. A few weeks ago, we put out a podcast about the Yates Memorandum, which has turned out to be one of our more popular podcasts. Thank you very much for those of you who've been listening, where we posed the fundamental question, what does the Yates Memorandum mean for compliance officers and compliance officer liability? Well, since that time, obviously, there's been some pretty earth-shattering news, if you will, about uh, compliance officers, their culpability, and recent cases that have been brought or settled by the Department of Justice, particularly here at the year end. Obviously, I'm talking about specifically the VW case and the Takata cases, where we had several individuals, executive-level individuals, who were uh, charged along with the organization's settlement of the case, criminal settlement of the case. And there's a lot to pick through in several of these settlements, The fundamental point that I made in the last podcast, though, I'm going to stick to, and that's that the most important thing that the Yates Memorandum does is that it's part of the conversation, that because of the Yates Memorandum and now these cases that have followed that are very high profile, it gives you an opportunity as a compliance officer uh, to go to management, to go to the board of directors and say, look, here's what's going on in the world. And here's why we need to pay very close attention to not only our compliance program and resources, but the culture of our organization. Because a lot of these issues, particularly if you're looking at systematic failures like at VW, are, are I think fundamentally, I, no one would argue there's, there's some cultural issues going on, at least within the part of the organization that was dealing with the emissions reporting to the government and other regulatory agencies. And I want to be clear, I'm not minimizing the importance of this. I think it's very important, the optics or perception of what uh, conduct will be acceptable and what the ramifications of that conduct might be by executives and others is very important. And keeping this front of mind uh, for those people who have the most influence over your program and your culture and are prime movers and shakers, if you will, within the organization uh, is is very important. And so I'm not being dismissive at all when I say the discussion is is probably the biggest impact. I'm not uh, either diminishing the specific impact of those individuals who find themselves in the crosshairs of uh, government action, whether that's regulatory or criminal. But I think we need to, uh, as we take a risk-based approach to looking at our program and are empirical about how we use data and leverage facts to make decisions, strategic decisions about what we do and say around compliance. We need to do the same here and sort of make sure that we understand the reality of what's going on. While there were a flurry of cases here at the end of the year, we are still talking about a handful of cases that end up being criminal cases versus other regulatory action versus no action at all. The vast majority of organizations still aren't being touched by the regulators and the federal prosecutors. We don't know yet, for example, how many total cases there were 
prosecuted against organizations in 2016, or for that matter, how many individuals were prosecuted along with those organizations for these sorts of offenses in 2016. My best guess is that when the Sentencing Commission finishes tallying this all up and we have the 2016 numbers, they're going to be pretty consistent with what we've seen in 2015 and 2014. And the trend overall is to have between 150 to 220 of these cases a year. Last year that we have full data on, which is 2015, there were 181 cases, I believe. I think that we're going to see something pretty consistent there even though there was this flurry at the end of the year. Again, I think it's important optics-wise for those of us that are trying to promote good governance and good compliance to promote and use these well-publicized events to our advantage and, and use it as a way to open a door to have a discussion. And again, as I said in the prior podcast about Yates, I think the fundamentally awesome thing about the Yates Memorandum is people are asking questions about it, and it, and it does provide the opportunity to open that door. And at its heart, the Yates Memorandum is about making sure that individuals are held accountable for their actions with these sorts of offenses. At its heart, what Sally Yates was saying in that memo is, uh, we don't want to see just organizations coming to the table and making settlements, whether those are criminal settlements or regulatory settlements or NPAs or DPAs or actual pleas, as was the case in the VW case. Those are fine and good and appropriate as to the circumstances of each of those cases. But we also must be mindful that if there are individuals, particularly individuals with culpability within these acts that are being pursued with regard to the organizations, that those individuals also be prosecuted. What I've talked about before is the fact that this is pretty much happened already. It may be that we haven't been publicizing it and we haven't been using it to our advantage when we're talking to individuals. But if you look back at the data, just the last two years, for example, in uh, 2014 and 2015, according to the Sentencing Commission, roughly 60% of cases that involved an organization also involved at least one individual being a co-defendant or having a criminal case brought against them along with the case that was being brought against the organization. So well over half, and this is a consistent number, at least for the last few years, well over half of these uh, cases where an organization is being held criminally responsible, there's a, a person, at least one, and if not many, as in, was in the case of these, both Takata and VW, at the end of the year, at least one, if not many individuals being charged as well. Now, the proof will be when we see the final data for 2016, if there's an uptick there, if it moves from where it is for 2015 and 2014, which is about 58% of cases, up to, say, the mid-60s or maybe even larger. It remains to be seen, but I think that's the metric we want to look at overall to get a sense as to whether Yates has had a discernible impact in charging more individuals than would have been charged otherwise. And I think that certainly is probably the case that a prosecutor who is looking at an organization has Yates front of mind. I don't doubt that at all, because it is uh, the most recent strong statement about the importance of individual culpability. So I don't discount that at all. But keep your eyes on the data that comes out of the Sentencing Commission once they tabulate the numbers for 2016, which is usually sometime in the spring, early summer. If you want to look at the data from past years, you can always find it at ussc.gov. 
They have a great interactive source book is what it's called. If you find that on the website and then there's a whole section devoted just to organizational cases, has a lot of interesting data there. Now I know some will say that there is a limited deterrent effect in talking about these issues with uh, the larger management group or executives that those that are prone to follow the rules are prone to follow the rules, whether they get these sorts of messages delivered or not. And those that aren't, aren't. In a broader sense, if you look at other deterrent studies on issues such as mandatory minimums, Project Exile, for example, rather controversial federal anti-gun program where the significant mandatory minimums were advertised in areas of the country where gun violence was very high. And there's uh, differing opinions as to whether the discussion about the severity of punishment actually has a deterrent effect. I don't think we'll ever know for sure. And in our case, does the Yates Memorandum in talking about people that get caught and prosecuted have a deterrent effect? Do, for example, when people like Richard B. Strong are out there talking about their experience as a defendant in anti-corruption or other cases, does that have a deterrent effect to the people who are listening? I don't think we'll ever know, but it's part of our toolbox when we talk to managers and executives at our organizations to talk about these potential consequences. And I think Yates, again, brings up that opportunity. Now, let's talk about the compliance elephant in the room from December and this year-end flurry. And that's Mr. Oliver Schmidt, who has been variously described in the press as the compliance officer or a compliance officer of Volkswagen. There's a lot of great articles out there, particularly in the New York Times, about this case so far that talk about the FBI investigators and the prosecutors putting together a case where they suggest that Mr. Schmidt was either, I think the term used often is central or key uh, to the fraud, that he was, for lack of a better term, the conduit. And I think that uh, some of the commentary I've seen about this case talks a lot about that, talks about where the danger zone for compliance officers in the future is when they act as conduits. And Mr. Schmidt definitely was that. He was communicating not only to EPA and California authorities about emissions data, but he did so in front of, for example, he testified in front of parliament in the UK. So he was the mouthpiece or the face of this uh, misinformation being presented to multiple different authorities. So what I've heard some compliance officers who are concerned say, and others who've been commenting on this, is that the danger zone now for compliance officers is if you are talking to regulators or other people outside the organization, and if, for example, you give information or data that is incorrect, that might put you on the hook. I think that's a reasonable thing to try to avoid and to be concerned about. But what hasn't been primarily reported in the news, although there have been discussions about the affidavit that supports the criminal information that's charged Mr. Schmidt with this crime, is that there's a lot more to this even within that affidavit. Now, it may turn out that once he has his day in court, uh, that he and his counsel are able to disprove some of these allegations. But the reason he was charged is not simply that he was, for lack of a better term, carrying water for the organization. The government is a little bit more specific about that and states very unequivocally that they believe he had intent and knowledge. 
And there's two particular things that I would point out that are in the affidavit that, again, aren't widely reported, but I think will provide some nuance to compliance officers that are concerned. First of all, which is not uncommon in a federal case or any kind of large fraud, there are some cooperating witnesses. There are people that are giving information to the investigators and to the government about the internal workings of this alleged scheme at VW. For example, in the affidavit, it is noted that there were several meetings, according to these uh, confidential witnesses, where Schmidt was apprised of the actual facts, that there was a defeat device, that VW was not reporting information. There's also purportedly some PowerPoint slides and information that corroborates this fact. And in other words, he knew about it, according to the government affidavit, and it wasn't a matter of him providing information, acting as the conduit to regulators unknowingly, not knowing that the information he was providing was false. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I noted in the indictment, which will uh, warm the hearts of (laughs) many current and former white-collar criminal practitioners, it's the old email bugaboo. There is also allegedly at least one email from Mr. Schmidt that shows that he had knowledge. And kind of dramatically and consistent with some of these cases, it kind of reminds me of the Enron case uh, back over a decade ago. He actually, in, according to the affidavit, puts in one of his emails, quote, intent equals penalty, exclamation point, unquote. So again, a cautionary tale, not only about not concealing these sorts of facts and this information from those uh, regulators or trying to deceive them, but also... Uh, a cautionary tale about email, which often comes up in these sorts of cases. So what does all of this mean? I think at its heart, it does provide a cautionary tale for compliance officers not to get in the middle of an ongoing fraud or the concealment of a fraud. That your job is not to batten down the hatches and try to minimize or deflect or do anything like that. Your job is to be transparent, and that you know differentiates your job from perhaps uh, the job of traditional job of, of others within the organization. Not that the traditional job <laughs> of others in the organization is to obfuscate, but certainly transparency is not evident here in, in the information we have so far. The second thing I would say is that it's worth having some caution about carrying water, about being the conduit for information and making sure that you not only protect yourself, but you protect your organization and everyone else by doing your level best to make sure that you're not the conduit for misinformation or inaccuracies. So if you are in the circumstance where as the compliance officer, you're reporting out to a regulator or something similar to that, that you do your level best and your due diligence to ensure that the data and information you're receiving from internal sources is as accurate as possible. But it takes a little bit more, at least in this case. This case is not a situation, at least not apparently, a case where a compliance officer is being held strictly liable for misinformation that they were the conduit for. That's not what's happening here. I know that's the way it's been reported in some areas and it's been discussed in some areas, that's not what we're looking at. Again, not to say that we shouldn't be wary and not saying that we should be complacent about being conduits, but that's not what the government is alleging here. They're alleging much, much more and a much more direct 
an intentional involvement in uh, the alleged fraud. So I would like to thank everybody again for listening in over these past few months. Get a lot of interesting and helpful feedback. And as always, if you have questions or you would like to see different topics covered, please let us know. Please contact us at uh, compliancebeat.com. As always, I want this podcast to be as informative and as helpful to the community as possible. The upshot this time is, despite the flurry of activity at the end of the year, the impact of the Yates Memorandum overall is yet to be seen, and we'll need to take a long, hard look at the data once it comes out. And while the prosecution of Oliver Schmidt at VW as their compliance officer is troubling, it really doesn't appear that he is only being charged because he was the conduit of misinformation. It looks like he was more actively involved. So while compliance officers should take care, it is intentional and knowing conduct that will always lead you astray. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com. 